Blog Talk Radio. Well, it's that time again. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance. Here in Portland, Maine, we do this every Monday from September through May. Uh, This is a program that is totally devoted to helping you understand behaviorally challenging kids and help them by seeing their difficulties through the prism of lagging skills and unsolved problems and solving those problems collaboratively and proactively rather than unilaterally. This is a good day to call in. The phone number is 646-727-2691. The uh, plan for today, if we have no callers, I'm just going to answer some of the email that has uh, accumulated. Um, There are people who've been waiting to get their questions answered for a little while now, and um, I'm going to do that. But if you do want to call in, today is a good day. Um, Once again, that number is 646-727-2691. Let me start. I think that our friends from Anytown Elementary are going to be calling in today as well for us to get a sense of how things are going in their neck of the woods. But until they do, let's start with some email. Here's one. Dr. Green, I'm a fan and student of your tremendous work in our school district. We are working hard on understanding on many levels and implementing your philosophy and strategies into our schools, and in particular, our behavior programs. I'm surprised that the district still uses the BASC, B-A-S-C, assessment to obtain information regarding a child who is in an initial special education evaluation rather than using the direct observable data that teachers do and using your lagging skills and unsolved problems for making educational decisions regarding behaviors. What do you think about functional behavior assessments? Our district is very rigid. On the FBA form, we have to answer the hypothesis of the behavior as either getting something, attention or control, or getting out of something, avoiding work. I find this really irritating and an injustice to the, an injustice to the kids for the school staff to be making a hypothesis about the student's target problem behaviors in this way. What are your thoughts? Thank you for any time that you can give me in addressing my two above concerns. If our school district is proposing to move forward in assessing kids, then why are we using these two above procedures and forms is my irritation and confusion. Thank you very much. Um, Great question. Questions. Let's tackle them. Uh, The Basque behavior assessment system for children is a behavior checklist and as um, 
you well know, and as presumably our listeners well know because of their familiar, familiarity with that instrument, it's not uh, too far a cry from um, the behavior checklists, and there's lots of different ones. There's the child behavior checklist. There's... Um, uh, there's there's lots of different behavior checklists out there, um, and they aren't bad. The, um, they're, they've, they've got research behind them. They've got normative data behind them. They're okay. The only problem I have with them, you know, is that they are about behavior, and I see behavior as being the byproduct of. Um, unsolved problems and lagging skills, but not the focal point. And so I think putting a great deal of time into documenting a kid's behaviors without really knowing the factors that are giving rise to those behaviors is misplaced effort and misplaced energy. Behavior is not the focal point. And putting a lot of time into filling out checklists and seeing what a kid's percentile rank is on behavior, I think misses the uh, misses the boat. Um, and I can completely understand your confusion and irritation along those lines. Um, I think that in many, many, many places, not just schools, people are primarily focused on behavior. And not on lagging skills and unsolved problems. That's doing a disservice to the kids because when you're working on behavior, you're looking at extinguishing the ones you don't like and replacing them with behaviors you like better without ever really knowing the factors underlying those behaviors in the first place. I think that it is misplaced focus, misplaced energy, and I think that it doesn't help a lot of kids um, so there's my opinion on that, not too much different than yours, if at all. What do I think of functional behavior assessments? Well, you probably know my answer on that one as well, because if you've heard me speak, you know where I'm going to be coming from on that one. Um, it all comes, the, the, the practice of doing a functional behavior assessment, no problem there. You know, what, what a functional behavior assessment is supposed to be is an effort to understand what's going on with a kid and for that understanding to set the stage for interventions based on that understanding. The problem with the way a lot of FBAs are done is that the answer to what's getting in the kid's way is already prescribed we know already a lot of them, most of them that I've read in my career, uh, and in fact many school systems have forms that make us look at things in this way. Um, many of them simply say that you have to document how the behavior is getting the kid something, and the typical things that the kid is getting are attention and control or getting out of something, avoidance, escape. I find this irritating too, and I too find it to be an injustice to the kids um, because 
why are we doing the FBA if we already know the answer to why we think a kid is doing what he's doing? And it's worse because if um, we already know and we're certain that that's the reason, that's going to lead us toward interventions aimed at proving to the kid that he's not going to get attention and that message is usually delivered through ignoring or punishing and trying to elicit or encourage replacement behaviors that we like better that usually accomplished through use of reward that's because the typical functional behavior assessment is based on a definition of function is that the child's challenging behavior is aimed at getting, escaping, and avoiding. Now, if we just alter our definition of function, I've come to call that the first pass definition of function, but it's not the only definition of function available to us. Here's another definition of function, and it's the one that I favor. The child's challenging behavior is communicating to us that he or she is lacking the skills to do it better. Because if he or she did have the skills to do it better, he or she would do it better. Now we've moved away from getting, escaping, and avoiding. And we've moved toward the skills the child is lacking and the problems that are being caused by those lagging skills, problems that we could be busy solving with a child collaboratively and proactively if we weren't so busy thinking that the child's behavior was the primary focus and that the function of the child's behavior was to get, escape, and avoid. By all means, we should continue doing FBAs. I think that uh, in most school systems, people don't have the choice, so you might as well do them. It is a it is a tragedy that the paperwork that most people are given and the training that most people are given is to view it with is to view things as behavior being the primary focal point and to interpret the behavior as functional in getting the kid something attention control or getting out of something avoidance escape one last point along these lines we all get, we all escape, we all avoid. You haven't said anything earth-shattering about a kid by saying that he's getting, I get, escaping, I escape, avoiding, I avoid. We all do. We all get, escape, and avoid. The million-dollar question for an FBA is not, is this kid getting, escaping, and avoiding? We all do that, so that's a given. The million-dollar question that an FBA should be answering is, why is this student going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in such a maladaptive fashion? That's the question we should be answering. And when you answer that question, you've got yourself an FBA. But simply stating in a rather rote fashion that the child is getting, escaping, and avoiding 
tells us absolutely nothing. Is it possible that when we are doing the first past definition of function in writing our FBAs, we are basically saying absolutely nothing? When I bring this up in workshops, people roll their eyes uh, in agreement when I say that FBAs frequently say the exact same thing. A good FBA is helpful. Helpful. It's not rote. It's not robotic. They shouldn't all say the same thing. We need to know why this kid is going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in such a maladaptive fashion, given that we all get, we all escape, and we all avoid. I think you and I see eye to eye on that one. Let's move on to the next one. Hi, Dr. Green. First of all, thanks for all you do. My pleasure. Your website was the answer to, the, to my question, how do I do this? Tomorrow is the first day of my new assignment. Now, this was written about two weeks ago, so um, I hope it's going well. I was assigned to a different student because I was not following the plan. And to tell you the truth, that is partially true. In the midst of a few crises, I would forget one of the many materials I had to use every day. Once or twice, I went home and realized that I forgot to make a note of something in my log. The situation was a bit hectic. I was working part-time with a special ed child in an elementary school. All the adults were trying really hard to make things work, but we were relying mostly on Plan A. Now I know that Plan B is the better and only option. You did not have to convince me too much. I just needed to learn the know-how. Thank you for running your invaluable website. My mantra from A Course in Miracles was, I am here only to be truly helpful. And I am glad I found your website a couple of months ago. Well, thank you very much for that very kind feedback. I'm in schools constantly, special ed classrooms constantly. And you're right, people in schools are relying mostly on plan A. Now, I think things are changing a little bit because I think that people are in schools, those who are paying some attention, realize that plan A isn't getting them where they want to go. It's not even efficient. While doing plan A is efficient, all you've got to do is tell the kid what the solution is. Over the long haul, plan A isn't efficient at all because problems aren't getting solved that way. Um, I've been in special ed classrooms in recent memory where I saw kids um, being restrained and placed in seclusion um, and thought it was completely unnecessary. When you're using plan A, you're going with solutions that are uninformed because you're not trying to figure out what's getting in the kid's way. Until you know what's getting in the kid's way, you're not exactly sure what you're working on. Plan B helps us figure out what's getting in the kid's way, relying on 
well, a very credible source of information for that. The kid. Um, I was listening to a plan B that was being done with a very challenging student recently, and it was acknowledged that plan A had been the modus operandi with that student until recently. And boy, this is a kid who's spending very little time in the school classroom. People had been relying almost exclusively on plan A and dealing with the kid, and he was blowing out. He was described to me as being a very defensive kid. I was found myself wondering, uh, I don't think he'd be defensive in response to plan B, but I'm, it's not surprising to me that he's defensive in response to plan A. I had the opportunity to observe plan B with this student, and boy, was he enthusiastic about participating, and boy, was he forthcoming with information. And boy, did he like it when he was involved in the solution. And boy, did he hate it when previously he had not been involved. Kids have legitimate concerns. They have information to give us, information we badly need if we are going to be solving problems with them. You get that information with Plan B. Solutions arrived at in Plan B when you have that information are informed solutions. Otherwise, they are uninformed solutions. Uninformed solutions don't work. Here's the next email. Thank you for your email, by the way. Hello, Dr. Green. Hold on. This one we've, uh, yeah, we covered part of it. Uh, I am a, we covered part of it on the educators panel last week, but the second part is for the program. I have two questions, one for the educators panel and one for you. Well, I read the question for the educators panel last week. Here's the one for me. When having discussions using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems with teachers, I've had trouble coming up with good wording for unsolved problems relating to some of the later difficulties on the lagging skill section. When discussing the earlier lagging skills, the teachers quickly come up with examples of situations that we quite easily can translate into something the teacher could actually say to the kid. But I've found it harder with some of the later lagging skills, primarily those involving what you could call social skills, like difficulty attending to or accurately interpreting social cues, poor perception of social nuances, but also this one, inflexible, inaccurate interpretations slash cognitive distortions. That's a tough one to translate into something the teachers could actually use in a meeting with the kid. I've noticed that you sometimes say things like, I'm just stupid, what's up? That doesn't feel right for me. Same goes for most of the unsolved problems relating to social skills. I've noticed that there seems to be a lot of misunderstandings between you and other kids. What's up? That wording presupposes that the kid knows there are misunderstandings, which is far from always the case. It's also hard to make it specific enough. I've noticed you don't seem to know how to approach other kids. Too general, too abstract, too hard for the kid to understand. I've listened to quite a few of the radio programs, including all of the Anytown High School programs, but I haven't found any that addresses these issues. Could you elaborate on them a bit? I'd be grateful. I'd be delighted. So here's the deal. 
Um, in the same way that, and I think that uh, the person who's writing this email completely understands this right now already. In the same way that on the earlier ones, say, for example, difficulty making transitions, we're not bending over backwards to include the lagging skill, difficulty making transitions, in the unsolved problem. In fact, there's no reason to include the wording of the, unso- of the lagging skill in the unsolved problem. So we wouldn't, say difficult, wouldn't have to say difficulty making the transition from choice time to math. We could just say difficulty moving from choice time when um, – had difficulty moving to math when choice time ends. So we don't have to, nor is it desirable, to try to include the wording of the lagging skill in the unsolved problem. The same would be true – Though for some of for for some of the, the for the uh, uh, lagging skills down near the bottom of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, we want to talk about these specific conditions in which a particular lagging skill is getting in the way. So let's take one: difficulty attending to or accurately interpreting social cues, poor perception of social nuances. Let's say that we read that one of the group, and the group says, oh, yeah, he's definitely got that one. And um, now we say, can you give me some examples of times when he has um, difficulty accurately interpreting social cues? And a group member says, well, yes. When the other kids sit together at lunch and don't save him a seat, he thinks it's because they don't want him to sit with them. Now, the first thing I would say next is, have you heard him say that? Because I want to make sure that this isn't a theory. Have you heard him say that? Yes, he's come to me and complained about it. He's come to me and said, the other kids don't want me sitting with them at lunch. Now, he only does this on days when they've gotten together and there were no extra seats and he got left out of the group. But on Other days, when that doesn't happen, he doesn't complain about it because he's sitting with them. Now, let's think about how we would word that one. Once again, not trying very hard to include the lagging skill in the unsolved problem. We're going to start with the word difficulty. And these are not all, the wording of these doesn't always come easily, even for me, by the way. But what he's having difficulty with is um, when there's no seat left with the kids he'd like to sit with and believing that that's because they don't want to sit with him. And we've heard him say that, so it's not a theory. Here's how I'd word it. Difficulty. When there are no seats with the kids you want to sit with at lunch and believing that's because they don't want to sit with you. Now, I could, quite frankly, while I like being really specific, I could actually run with the first part and not the second, but that's actually the unsolved problem. And I don't need to include the wording from the lagging skill in the unsolved problem. I actually don't mind... um, Hold on, let me find it in your email. Um... I would say the same thing on inflexible, accurate interpretations, cognitive distortions, etc. 
Now, you wrote one. I've noticed that you sometimes say things like, I'm just stupid. What's up? I'd want to pay much closer attention to the specific conditions in which the kid is saying, I'm just stupid. And if the kid is mostly saying, I'm just stupid, when he's trying to complete the double-digit division problems in math, then I would have the unsolved problem be difficulty completing the double-digit division problems in math. If he's also saying, I'm just stupid when he fails to get a goal in a soccer game, I'd say difficulty when he doesn't score a goal in the soccer game. So I would, I'm just saying I'm just stupid, I would probably put in the same category as hitting, spitting, kicking, throwing, destroying, running. It's a behavior. It may be a behavior that suggests something that the student is actually thinking, but I still need to put the hard work into figuring out when this is being said so that, I, number one, I'd want to split that unsolved problem. And I don't really want to go with the behavior. I'm just stupid. I'll hear about whether the student actually thinks he's stupid in the empathy step of plan B. He, he might. He might not. He might tell us it's just something he says when he's upset with himself, um, in which case we're not really focused on the behavior. We're focused on the problem giving rise to the behavior. Let's do a few more of these because this is important. Um, I actually don't have a huge problem with one of the things that you worded. I've noticed that there seems to be a lot of misunderstandings between you and other kids. What's up? The only problem I have with it is that it's clumped. And I'd want to know what the misunderstandings are about. And then once I knew what the understandings were about, the, the language would change to reflect those specific misunderstandings. So, for example, let's say that there are misunderstandings about the rules during the basketball game. Now the unsolved problem is difficulty agreeing with the other kids about the rules in the basketball game. I just split it and made it much more specific so that the kid knows what we're talking about. So I don't have to use the word misunderstandings, and in fact, I'm not positive that it's misunderstandings that are going on. Now, if I didn't know that it was disagreements about the rules, then I would have to go with something a little bit less specific, like difficulty during the basketball game. That's what I would have to do. You know, the as I always say, the unsolved problem is only as specific as the information that is available to us without theorizing. One more. I've noticed you don't seem to know how to approach other kids. I think that that's also clumped and would want to split it. Uh, difficulty entering the group during box ball games. Difficulty entering the dress-up group during choice time. So I've noticed you don't seem to know how to approach other kids. Would need some revision. But as you can see, um, these could easily be reworded so as to make them more specific. Without pressure to include the lagging skill in the unsolved problem, and especially making sure that we are splitting the unsolved problems so that it is 
is as specific as possible with regard to what we are actually seeing giving rise to the behavior that we don't like. Here's another email. Hi, Dr. Green. I attended one of your webinars in November and decided to try Plan B with one of my fifth grade students. We decided to focus on his difficulty dealing with friends, classmates at recess and in the classroom. We are finding that he is regressing and isn't contributing as much as we see other students in your video. Do you have any suggestions for making this work better for someone with low cognitive ability? Thanks. Well, I don't know if low cognitive ability is why Plan B isn't working as well as we would like. Um, the unsolved problem seems a bit vague. I don't know if we're talking about recess or the classroom. I think we could, once again, uh, just, just similar to the last question, um, I think we need to split that, not clump it. We... Um, want to be as specific as possible about the unsolved problems that are related to recess. We don't want to clump them into just recess. If he's having trouble in the boxball game, and if he's having trouble um, in the basketball game, and if he's having trouble playing tag, all at recess, those would be three separate unsolved problems. And the reason we want to do it that way is because if we clump them, there's an outstanding possibility that the difficulties in the boxball game are different than the difficulties in the basketball game, which are different from the difficulties when playing tag. The classroom would be a completely different animal. Um, we'd want to split that as well. Difficulties in the classroom, what is he having difficulties with, would be my next question, and we'd want to be as specific about that as possible. Not having difficulties full-time at recess or full-time in the classroom He's having difficulties um, part-time. There are certain conditions at recess that are getting in his way, certain conditions in the classroom that are getting in his way. If we're specific about those, we make it a lot easier for the student to talk to us about them. Um, so what I can't quite tell is if, it's the student's low cognitive ability that's getting in the way here. But I know how we would put that to the test. Let's split those unsolved problems, word them well according to the guidelines, which I'm about to go through because I'm thinking that's probably not a bad idea for me to include the different guidelines in this program. But let's split them first and then see if the student has an easier time participating in the process then. Then we will have discovered that having unsolved problems that are clumped, too vague, makes it very difficult for this student to participate in the process. And by the way, he wouldn't be alone. First of all, you wouldn't be alone in the tendency to clump. Clumping is one of the things adults have the biggest difficulty with when it comes to wording unsolved problems. And he wouldn't be the first to have difficulty responding 
to a clumped, unsolved problem. Lots of kids just say, I don't know, or don't talk, or leave the room, all in response to clumped, unsolved problems that haven't been split yet. So I'm delighted that you are trying Plan B. I hope you're doing it proactively. I don't see any indication of your timing here. That's big, too. But let me spend a few minutes reviewing the uh, guidelines for the wording of unsolved problems. We've, We've kind of indirectly covered almost all of them, but the first one is actually that we not include challenging behavior in the unsolved problem. That's why we're going to be starting our unsolved problems with the word difficulty. No need to include the challenging behavior in the unsolved problem. In fact, good to get the challenging behavior out of the unsolved problem so as to make it perfectly clear that the behavior is not the unsolved problem. The unsolved problem that's giving rise to the behavior is the unsolved problem. Let's make that crystal clear. But at a purely practical level, if you include the behavior in the unsolved problem and say the kid's challenging behavior, throw the kid's challenging behavior at him in the unsolved problem, you actually reduce the likelihood of the kid participating in the process. Because kids have a tendency, not all of them, but a tendency to become defensive when we throw their behavior at them. That's guideline number one. Leave the behavior out. Start your unsolved problems with the word difficulty. That covers all of the behaviors, is much more neutral, and leads you seamlessly into the introduction and the empathy step where you're saying, I've noticed that, that's in the beginning, and ending with what's up, and in between, you are inserting the highly specific unsolved problem, beginning with the word difficulty, and here's what it might sound like. I've noticed that you're having difficulty agreeing on the rules with the other kids during box ball. What's up? As I've been saying in my talks lately, the more effort you put into nailing down the unsolved problems when you are having your discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, the more seamless goes the introduction to the empathy step of plan B. Let's get those unsolved problems worded well in the beginning. That will serve us well when we are introducing the unsolved problem to the kid later. So that's guideline number one. Guideline number two, the unsolved problem should be free of adult theories. Oh, boy. Now, that didn't come up in this email, but free of adult theories. So, in other words, you're not writing in difficulty agreeing with the other kids about the rules during the box ball game at recess because he's adopted. You're not saying that. Number one, I, it just doesn't make sense to me that that would be the reason. And number two, it's a theory. And as I've been saying on my talks a lot lately, The hardest part about that guideline is that we adults tend to fall passionately and deeply in love with our theories. My experience is that our theories are frequently wrong. Leave the theories out of the unsolved problem. 
Plus, if you throw a theory at a kid, you've just made it harder for him to respond because first he has to sort through whether your theory is accurate. If he concludes that it isn't, he has to let you know that in a nice way. And then he has to start thinking about what his concern or perspective really is. To tell you the truth, I'd rather skip those first two parts. He shouldn't have to think about whether your theory is accurate, and he shouldn't have to let you know that it's not in a nice way. Let's leave the theory out, and he can just start thinking about what his concern or perspective is and head straight for it. That's guideline number two. Guideline number three. Um, The unsolved problem should be split not clumped. Now, that's the one that we were primarily focused on uh, on this email, split, not clumped. And you've gotten, along with the email preceding this, some good examples of how I would split unsolved problems that are currently clumped. You don't want to clump them. Then, as I've said in a talk that I did on Friday, what you're really talking to the kid about is mush, mush. He doesn't know what you're talking to him about, and you greatly increase the likelihood of him saying nothing, or I don't know when the unsolved problem is too mushy. And then finally, the unsolved problem should be as specific as possible, often by including details about who, who who is the kid having the difficulty with, what, what is the difficulty about, And where, when, where and when is the problem coming up? Those are very good ways to make the unsolved problem more specific. Those are the guidelines. And by the way, you don't want to deprive yourself of another source of information besides adults uh, on the unsolved problem You want to ask the kid, too. Separately, I don't have kids in these meetings, and I don't have adults in my meeting with the kid. Early on, obviously, when it's time to start collaborating on solutions, it's desirable for them to be together, but it's not desirable for them to be together when we're trying to talk about lagging skills and unsolved problems. We may not want to be talking about the lagging skills in front of the student, And as the group of adults are trying to generate the list of unsolved problems, we don't necessarily want the kid in there disagreeing with us, correcting us, etc. The kid is out of the meeting in which the adults are discussing lagging skills and unsolved problems, but we do want to meet with the kid, especially to talk about unsolved problems. As I always say these days, but you can't ask him what his unsolved problems are. He won't know what you're talking about. But you can say to him, what are people bugging you about? As I always say, if people are bugging him about something, that something must be an unsolved problem. Otherwise, they wouldn't be bugging him about it. What are people giving you a hard time about? If people are giving him a hard time about something, that something must be an unsolved problem. Otherwise, they wouldn't be giving him a hard time about it. What are you getting in trouble for? If he's getting in trouble for something, that something must be an unsolved problem. Otherwise, he wouldn't be getting in trouble for it. Kids tend to be outstanding sources of information on unsolved problems, not just adults. 
just that I don't put them in the same room together when we're trying to come up with lagging skills and unsolved problems because I might not want to talk about lagging skills in front of the kid and because I'd rather get the information about unsolved problems independently from kid and adults. Yes, we want to get them together again as quickly as possible so that we can start solving problems. We might even want to involve the student in the discussion about which unsolved problems would be the best ones to start with. And there's, well, that's just about all I can think of to talk about with the uh, issues that you raised in your email. But now back to your email. I don't know if uh, his low cognitive ability is why you may not be making the kind of headway that you might like with Plan B. But once again, we'll find out by wording the unsolved problems well, prioritizing, and then we'll see if there's anything about the student that makes it difficult for the student to participate in Plan B. But we've got to do our part first. We've got to get the wording right. Then we'll see. I think those are all of the emails. We've got about three minutes left in the program today. I might not use all three, um, but I don't have time to answer any of the remainder uh, adequately. So let me uh, just remind you, we now know when the next annual Lives in the Balance conference is, and we even know where as well. The where part is easy. It's going to be in Portland, Maine every year. And, um, oh boy, I thought I could find it on the, well, I think I did find it on the website. Hang on one second. Uh, Well, I'll be darned. It's not in there. So I'm going to give you the date by looking in my calendar. The third annual Lives in the Balance conference is scheduled for November 8th, 2013, here in Portland, Maine. And this year's conference is going to have an expanded theme. It's the uh, third annual Lives in the Balance Conference on Non-Punitive, Non-Adversarial Interventions for At-Risk Kids. So while we will be providing information on solving problems collaboratively, there will be other non-punitive, non-adversarial interventions for at-risk kids that will be featured at this year's conference as well. The goal is to have a mechanism for bringing people of like minds, even if their models aren't identical. The goal is to bring together people of like minds, and it's, by the way, the third annual International Summit on non-adversarial, non-punitive interventions for at-risk kids. Um, We want to bring together people from across the world, all here in Portland, Maine, the headquarters of Lives in the Balance. Um, to make sure that we can do our part to move things in that direction and to find ways that we can work together. So don't forget, and and by the way, Maine is a wonderful place to be at the beginning of November. Uh, we got leaves. 
right now, this being March and us coming out of winter, we are hoping for leaves. But, um, well, eight months from now, they'll be turning beautiful colors here in this wonderful state where there's a lot of solving problems collaboratively going on, and um, we want to make sure everybody knows about all that's going on not only in Maine, but also throughout the world with interventions that are either specific to solving problems collaboratively or at least similar in philosophy. Mark your calendar, November 8th. I hope you can make it. And that's going to do it for today's program. I'm delighted that you were able to listen in. And um, I'm going to find out what happened to the folks at Anytown Elementary, and we will try to have them on next week. In the meantime, and I'm betting that we can do that, I look forward to this program again next week, as always. Take care.